Praise the Lord. So we're in a new book. It is the book of Ecclesiastes. And it is a funny thing to hear people try to pronounce that word. I get a lot of them. I get eclectics. Are we studying the book of eclectics? Uh, Sometimes the book of elastics, you know. Uh, Sometimes the book of ecclesiastics, you know. (laughs) But it's actually Ecclesiastes is the word. And uh, what the word actually means, it comes right out of something in the first verse uh, where, uh, where it says the words of the preacher. And those words in the Hebrew, the preacher, it's the Hebrew word koheleth, which literally means the preacher or the speaker or the teacher. And so basically the name of the book is the first line of the book. It's the one who's speaking. It is the teacher. And so uh, we are starting a study tonight. And for the next 11 weeks, we will be in this book, 11 studies in this. And I wanted to give the, the series of these studies a title for the sake of kind of building anticipation and building some curiosity, uh, hopefully, and some expectation in you. And I kind of debated back and forth between um, two, two titles. Because if you look at the book in its entirety, it really is a riddle. The entire book is just a riddle. And so the book asks a question, and then it leaves the answer kind of out there. The answer is in there, but it never spells it out absolutely completely. And, and the, the, the question that's being asked that makes this book what it is, is what is the meaning of life? That's the question. And that's a big question. A lot of people have tried to answer that question. And the book never specifically answers the question and says, this is the meaning of life. But the answer is uh, weaved in throughout the, the passages, the pages of it. And the answer is really, get over the sun. And so I went back and forth between those two titles. Is, is there life before death? Or, or, you know, what is the purpose of life? And get over the sun. And I actually liked get over the sun better. Um, but the people that I consult with gave me some pushback and said that that's way too heady. Uh, don't do that. And so I capitulated and I went with my second preference. And we named the series after the question. And so uh, is there life before death? Or what is the meaning uh, of life? And that is really the, the, what the book is about. Um, it's a study on the meaning of life. Uh, the author of the book, we find right in verse 1. And if you would just look with me at the first three verses of chapter 1. It says that the, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man of all his labor which he takes under the sun? And so the very first thing that happens at the beginning is that the author identifies himself. And although Solomon, the author, is never listed by name, all other possibilities are removed in verse 12. Because in verse 12, he identifies himself as the one who was king over all of Israel. And Solomon was the only son of David who was ever king over all of Israel. Because after him, there was a division of the land and there was two different kings. And so Solomon is the author. And, uh, and that's a, a very important distinction to make concerning this book and concerning the topic that it is seeking to tackle. Because I'm personally very glad that it's Solomon that's asking this question and then get, seeking to give an answer. Because pretty much everyone who ever breathed could probably give you their opinion concerning the answer to this question. In fact, I I printed up just a few 
of the answers to this question that I found uh, the most enlightening that I'll share with you. Um, this is an unnamed person, and they were asked, what is the purpose of life? And they said, the answer is quite simple. We strive for worldly goals, primarily to achieve satisfaction and happiness. The pursuit of the elusive, superlative, and lasting happiness is intrinsically what drives all our actions. However, even after we accomplish our worldly goals, the resultant happiness and satisfaction is short-lived. We then search for the next dream to chase. Profound words indeed. Another, uh, this was Paul. He said, the purpose of life is to cherish the beauty of this immense world, to understand, discover new people, to love but not hate, to laugh as much as you can, to feel, to experience family, career, status, personality, and self-love. P.S., thank you for listening. We will meet again with a new answer. That's what Paul said. Uh, this, I will, I, I don't want to give away the gender on this one, um, but this individual said that all evidence to date suggests that it's chocolate. You guys can figure out, uh, who, who might have said that. Um, another, uh, unnamed person said the meaning of life is realizing that the meaning of life is halfway between birth and death and that you have no idea where that mean is making you feel mean even when you cannot feel your mean. You know what I mean? It might be getting closer. Another person said, the meaning of life is to pretend so effectively that you have found the meaning of life, that you will be remembered for finding it, and then looking down from the clouds after you die and laughing at all the people who think you found something they did not. <laughs> Come on, I thought this was great, you know. And I like this. This was George Carlin. George Carlin said, I want to live. I don't want to die. That's the whole meaning of life, not dying. I figured that out by myself in the third grade. <laughs> and my question is, how's that working out for you? I don't think he figured it out as much as he think, thought that he did, you know, the whole thing. But I'm really glad that none of those people were assigned by God with the task of tackling this question and then recording their answer in the scripture. God probably would have a hard time finding someone qualified to do that. And so what God did is that he made one. He made a person that was capable of doing it. Because a person that's going to take on that question and then lay it out in the pages of Scripture based on their experience has to be a man that possesses four unique qualities. First of all, that person has to be a person with close to unlimited resources because it's going to be a very expensive venture to try to figure that out. They also have to be a person that has a massive amount of energy and drive to be able to try different things. It's also going to have to be, thirdly, someone who has a ton of free time or the ability to make free time into their schedule. And then fourthly, it's going to have to be a person who is filled with wisdom, that knows how to discern, that knows how to choose and decide, that knows how to evaluate and calculate means and ends. And, and it would be that type of person that would be equipped properly to answer the question truly of what is the meaning of life. And as we look at the pages of history, we see that there is none more qualified than the man Solomon. His story was that as a son of David and a newly inaugurated king, God came to him in a dream and said, Solomon, what can I give you? Basically, God said to Solomon, it's a blank check. You ask, and I'm going to grant it. And Solomon replied to God, his answer to that prayer or to that um, plea was, I, I need an understanding heart. I need discernment and wisdom 
to know how to go in and out among the people. This is a great people. These are your people, God, and I'm just a youth. I don't know how to do it. And so I need a wise and understanding heart. And God's response to Solomon when Solomon asked for that is he said, I'm so glad, Solomon, that you asked me for wisdom and that you didn't ask for riches, for the life of your enemies, for pleasures. I'm so glad you didn't ask for that, that not only am I going to give you what you asked for, but I'm also going to give you all those other things that you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you peace in your day. I'm going to give you wealth, and I'm going to give you a great capacity to be able to do a lot of things. And part of God's strategy in raising up this man who was full of resources, full of time, full of energy, and full of wisdom was so that he could, inspired by the Spirit of God, pursue to find an answer to this question of what is the meaning of life and then to lay it down in the Bible uh, for you and I so that we would know the answer to the question. The first chapter of the book that we look at tonight really sets the stage for the 11 chapters that follow it. And this first chapter basically breaks up into three segments. There's a brief introduction, which we read, which gives to us, first of all, the authorship, that is, that Solomon wrote it. He then gives us the conclusion to all of his experiments. He tells us right up front the conclusion that he came to at the end of this pursuit to find the meaning of life, and he tells us that it's vanity of vanities, basically emptiness. Everything that I've found, every door that I've knocked on, every path that I've gone down, I have found that the answer isn't there, that it's vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So he gives the conclusion, but then after that, he gives the question. And the question in verse 3 is, what profit or what benefit or to what purpose does a man live and for and have of all his labor which he takes under the sun that was the question that drove solomon to do and experience all of the things that he did and experience in order to record the things that are written within this book So he does this in Jeopardy style. He gives the answer first, vanity of vanity, all is vanities, and then he hits the button himself and he says, Alex Trebek, what is the meaning of life? You win, double Jeopardy, you got it. You know, that's the answer, vanity of vanities. So that's part one is the introduction. And then in verses four through 11, the second part of the chapter, he gives to us a foundational premise represented by four truths that we'll look at. And then third and finally, he kind of gives us a foreword as the author. So you know how you read a book or a novel, and in the front of the book, there'll be a foreword. And it's usually kind of a note of the author that gives you a little bit of background, a little bit of insight into what is to follow, uh, who the author is, why they wrote the book, something along those lines. And that's exactly what Solomon does at the end of the chapter, is that verses 12 through 18, he just gives us a brief foreword to represent what's ahead uh, in the chapters to come. Now, some have said concerning the book of Ecclesiastes that it is the most depressing book that has ever been written in the history of man, and that it certainly is the most depressing book in the Bible. And the reason they say that is because 38 times in the book, Solomon uses the word vanity to describe his 
outcome of seeking for meaning. He says it's vanity, it's empty, there's nothing that's in it, 38 times. Ten times in the book he uses the word vexation, which means confusion or frustration. That on a path that he thought would give purpose, what he found was frustration. And then he uses 29 times the phrase under the sun, meaning to describe life on this earth. And so emptiness, chasing after the wind, frustration and confusion in everything that I have done under the sun. And thus people look at that and they say, what a dismal, what a depressing, dark cloud of a book that we have in the Bible. Now my answer to that is this, that the book of Ecclesiastes is only depressing depending which side of the sun you're living on. If you're living on this side of the sun, Solomon's side of the sun, then yes, this can be an extremely depressing book. But if you live on the other side of the sun, then not only is this book not depressing, but personally, I find it to be one of the most hopeful books in the entire Bible. In fact, this book is one of my favorite books in the Bible and has been since the time that I first became a Christian. And here's why. Here's why a book that is filled with vanity, confusion, and frustration is my favorite book of the Bible. Because what I know as a child of God and as a believer in Jesus Christ and a recipient of his grace, what I know is that life is not without purpose. I know that life actually does have value because the rest of the Bible tells me that it does. In Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, Jesus says these words. He says, Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, if I don't have purpose, then I don't have any value. But if I do have value, then that means I do have purpose. The Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church there, and he speaks to us and he says, In Christ, verse 11 of chapter 1, we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated, listen, according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Meaning the Bible emphatically declares that there is a purpose for your life and existence and for mine. Paul says in verse 17, when he's praying for us, he says, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In other words, that there's something that can happen to each one of us where our eyes can be open to something, that is, to see the purpose that God has for you and me that it's possible for us to be blinded of. In chapter 2, verse 10 of the same book, Paul says this. He says that we are his, God's, workmanship and that we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them 
In other words, God has a purpose for our lives. Our lives are valuable to him, and there is meaning to be found in our existence in this world. I capped that explanation off by sharing with you words that Jesus spoke in John chapter 10, verse 10, where he said that he was the good shepherd and that he came to lay down his life for his sheep, that he might give to us, listen, life, and that we might have it more abundantly. And so what I know as a Christian, what I know as one who belongs to Jesus, is that my life is not without purpose, it's not without value, it's not without meaning. It's full of purpose, and it's full of meaning. And so when I look at that, and then I take it to the backdrop of the book of Ecclesiastes that we have right here, I'm filled with hope. You know why? Because on every chapter, every page, and every segment of this, there is a path that I, as a human being, might be tempted to go down in order to try to find satisfaction and life. And at the head of every one of those trails, there's a sign that has been nailed into the ground by none other than King Solomon himself that says, spare yourself the time. You don't need to try to find life here because I went down this road all the way to the end and there ain't no life in it. And so what this book represents for me is a warning and a beacon of where life is not found, and that helps me because I am prone to wander. Maybe you're not, but I am. And I'm so thankful that God enriched, energized, and endued a man named Solomon with everything that he needed to chase down every potential path that I as a frail human being, might be tempted to go down to try to find the meaning of life. And I have his testimony at the, uh, at the beginning of each path saying, it ain't found here. And for that reason, this book is one of my favorites in the entire Bible because of the insight and the wisdom that it transfers to me. Now, beginning in verse 4, Solomon sets forth the premise that becomes the backdrop for everything that he'll say for the rest of the book. And the premise is this, that nothing on this side of the sun, whether it's in nature, in culture, or humanity, has ever found its purpose. Nothing in nature, in culture, or in humanity has ever found its purpose from the very beginning. And he represents that premise with four truths. The first truth is given to us in verse 4, and that truth, if you're taking notes, is that generations come and go. Notice what he says. He says that one generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. Generations, that is, of human beings, they're born, they live, they pass, and another generation is there then to fill their place, and so on and so on the cycle goes. Now, obviously, we know that he's speaking from a human vantage point because we know that the earth is not going to abide forever. In fact, we know quite the opposite, that one day the world will come to an abrupt end. But what Solomon is saying is that from our vantage point on this side of the sun, one generation unfolds into the successive generation that is yet to come. Now, all that aside, I think this is a very important truth that you and I need to keep somewhere very close to the front of our mind. Did you know that short the second coming, which is a possibility, but should Jesus not come back in our lifetime, did you know that you are not the last generation to inhabit the planet Earth? 
See? You see, she's just honest. But in reality, what I have observed and found is that every generation in some way really believes that they are the last generation. Not necessarily, I'm not talking about Christians that think Jesus is coming back in their lifetime. That's a whole nother thing. I'm saying separate of that. Every generation thinks they're the last generation that has life figured out. And that after us, the whole world has gone to pot. We had it right. We figured it out. We walked uphill to school both ways without buses in the cold. We ate cold food once a day, just enough. We got a pencil for Christmas and we liked it and we were thankful for everything we had. Not like kids these days. There is a plague that has come upon every generation that exists on planet Earth from the beginning and it will probably carry on all the way to until the end. And that plague is this. Is that we have the tendency to think that we figured it out and that the generation to come is lost without our wisdom. And the mistake that we make is this. Is that we try to stop the unstoppable flow of this kaleidoscope called life and to bring a new generation backwards into the things that we did and that worked for us in our generation. And not one generation has ever succeeded to do it. The only thing they've succeeded to do is to frustrate the generation that's to come. When I was growing up, my father played in our house. I'm not even kidding you. You might not even know these names. Jackie Wilson... Okay, that was a big one. Little Richard, Chuck Berry. I mean, we're talking about the late 80s, all right? But that's where my father got stuck, okay? He got stuck in like 1958, right? So then what happened is I grew up and I went to school. And when I went to school, I heard Def Leppard. I heard Guns N' Roses. I heard poison and something came alive in me and I said, yeah, that's music, you know. And I went home and I said, dad, have you heard this stuff? And he looked at me and he said, son, that's rot. And you'll never play that filth in my house again. He said, this is real music. And then he, you know, put on Fats Domino or something like that, you know. (laughs) And see, we have this tendency to just get stuck. But understand this. Generations come and generations go. Now, here's how that applies to you and me as Christians specifically and not just as parents. Is that somehow successive generations continue, culture changes, values change, ideals change, but somehow the narrow path that Jesus said leads to life pierces and penetrates right up the very center of every one of those generations and their ideals, values, and the things that meet their culture where they are. And the danger that we can fall into as Christians is saying, no, 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 no. We had Christianity figured out. We had the Holy Spirit cornered in the way that we did spiritual things. And we can seek to pull a new generation backwards into the way God met with us and not embrace the way God might be meeting with them. You have all heard what happens when hymns were first introduced into the church. Well, the traditional church in that day said, no way, this is bar music, four-part harmonies, piano, honky-tonk. This is of the devil. We can't let this be played in our churches. 
Well, now we sing the hymns in our churches and we say, this is the traditional way that God moves. And we hear hip hop set to Christian lyrics and we say, are you kidding me? That's the devil's music. Satan has hijacked rhythm and language and poetry and meter. And that can never be redeemed of God. No, 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 no. God made language. God made rhythm. God made meter. God made poetry. And therefore, those things can be hijacked back from the Christian perspective and used for the things of God. And you and I right now stand on the cusp of one generation folding into the next. And we have the opportunity or the obstacle of either thrusting them forward in the things of God and letting God meet them where they are or of pulling back and saying, no, 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 we won't embrace, we won't allow. Listen, if they have the Holy Spirit and the word of God, then the narrow way will penetrate right through the middle of what they are at, where they are at, for some of us, for where we are at. And we must allow and embrace it. I want you to hear what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 89. He says, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. The word of God, the truth of God is settled. It's unchanging. Your faithfulness is unto all generations. You have established the earth and it abides. They continue this day, the generations, according to your ordinances, for all are your servants. In other words, God knows how to meet each generation where they are, even if it doesn't look the same as it did in a previous one. Our job is told to us in Psalm 145, verse 4. It says, One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. And we must, if we are to remain useful to God in the coming days, we must be flexible to allow God to meet the next generation the way that he wants to. That doesn't mean it will be contrary to the word of God, because it won't. It never will be. It doesn't mean it will be contrary to his person. He will not change and be redefined. But he may do it in a completely different way, and we must be ready for it. One generation passes, another one will come. The second truth he gives to us in verses 5 through 7, and I think it's an important word for us, and Solomon says basically to us that life is moving, get on board or miss out completely. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says, The sun also arises and goes down and hastes to the place where he arose. The wind also goes towards the south and towards the north. It whirls around continually, and the wind returns again according to his circuits. And the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. He gives three examples from nature. The sun in its continual rising and then setting, which is cyclical in nature and never changing. The wind, which is constantly stirring and moving about according to its currents and its trends. And then thirdly, the water cycle, which is a continual flow of evaporation, condensation, precipitation, wash, rinse, repeat, over and over and over again. The cycle of nature that continues over and over again. And I think what Solomon is, is hinting at in all of this, and he certainly was a man who laid a lot of hints, wasn't he? You read his writings, is that he was say, saying to you and I that we have, each of us, a universal opportunity. We have a lifespan, and there is a period of time that we will be on this earth. And we can either sit out and let it pass us by, or we can grab a hold of it, and we can make something of it. 
We all are given, when we come into this world, a set of varying circumstances, privilege, culture, and all the rest, and we have an opportunity to make something of what's in front of us. And if we sleep, we miss out because things keep going on and on, whether we latch on or not. Isn't it amazing how fast time goes? It is. I'm amazed. We were talking yesterday, election day, uh, watching the results last night, and I just said to my wife, I said, you know what's amazing is that I remember exactly where I was, almost what I was wearing, what I was doing when Barack Obama was elected president the first time. And it seems like it was yesterday, and it was 10 years ago. And man, life just goes, doesn't it? Brookstone, that store that sells crazy things that no one can ever buy but they love to look at and wish for, they had this thing that they made a bunch of years ago uh, called the life clock. And basically, you would send in some information about yourself, uh, your age, your general state of health and well-being, background, life habits, and they would send you back a clock that was a countdown of the estimated amount of time you had left until you died. (laughs) And, you know, you you think, well, that's not something I really want to look at, you know, all the time. But there's something to that, you know, to just have something like that and just put it in the place where you sit the most and have that, watch that second hand just continually ticking downward. And sometimes I think that might be a helpful thing for you and I. Because while we're not looking, guess what's passing us by? Life and time. And we have what we have, and then it's over with. The third truth that Solomon presents before us as a premise for the rest of the book is given to us in verse 8, and that is that satisfaction cannot be obtained through the senses. That's a very important point he makes. He says that all things are full of labor, man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. It's funny truth, isn't it? But no matter what you see, you'll always crave to see more or something else. I've always been an avid nature guy. I remember driving through the rural town that I was brought up in and looking off on the other side of the cornfields at the woods that were there and just wanting to be in those woods and wanting to see what it looked like to be surrounded with such thick vegetation like all of that. And I remember one day it came, it happened. And I was in there and I was like, okay, here I am. And you know what? I wasn't satisfied. And then I saw a mountain. And I thought, you know, I wonder what life looks like from the top of that mountain. And I was privileged to be able to climb that mountain, go up it and see. And I got up there and I looked around. You know what? It was awesome. And I said, okay, now I've seen this. Another time I drove past a meadow and I thought, you know, I've always wanted to run through a meadow, just run through like the tall grass. Anybody else or am I just weird? You know, I just want to run through that meadow and just just run through. I want to feel that. I want to feel what it's like. And You know, I did it. And you know what? This feels like running on the road, except I keep twisting my ankle. (laughs) <laughs> you know, because I can't see the ground that I'm walking on now. And no matter what I've seen, I'm never satisfied. I watched a YouTube video where, uh, and you know, I, I, it may be confession, I got drawn in, okay? But these guys are standing on a cliff, and they had a basketball hoop on the bottom of the cliff, and they said, see the most amazing shot ever. And so I was drawn in by that, and I clicked on it, and I saw this guy literally standing on a cliff. I mean, it had to be 500 feet. And you couldn't even see the basketball hoop except they zoom way in on it, you know. And this guy goes like this, and he takes it, and he just hook shots, and you watch this ball go down, 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 and it goes through. And I was like, yeah, you know, he made it, you know. And then it's like, now what? Now what? How many shots, how many takes 
did it take to get that ball to go in that hoop? And someone on the other side was saying, I want to see this ball go through that hoop from here. And then they did it. And it was like, okay, well, now we got to make a better video. Why? Because the eye isn't satisfied with seeing. Nor is the ear satisfied with hearing. You guys know, you listen to the most amazing song, epic music, something that just grabs you and twists you in a knot and makes you cry, and you're like, yeah, you know. And then you listen to it the second time, the third time, the fifth time, and you're like, eh. And it's on to the next one. I call, I call music, um, a lot of times I'll call it bandages in my house. Because like, there'll be a song that really helps me through a season or a particular thing that I'm going through. And it really does. It helps me. But then once I'm through that thing, I can't ever listen to that music again. Because it's like pulling old bandages out of the garbage can. You know, It brings me right back to what I felt like when I was going through the thing that the music helped me with. You know, the ear isn't satisfied with hearing. And essentially what Solomon is saying is that satisfaction cannot be obtained through the senses. And then what he tells us in verses 9 through 11, the fourth truth that sets the premise for the rest of the book is that there is nothing new under the sun. Everything is just a rebranding of something that has already been. Verse 9, he says, The thing which has been... It is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this thing is new? It has already been of old time which was before us. There is no remembrance of the former things, neither shall be any remembrance of the things that are to come with those things that shall come after. There is nothing new. What Solomon is saying is this. He's saying that there is yet to be anything that is discovered or invented that can truly satisfy and that there is nothing that is new. You say, I beg to differ. The smartphone is new. The iPhone is new. Solomon did not have a smartphone in his day. Okay, Solomon did not have a smartphone, but the iPhone or the smartphone is not new because you know what the smartphone is? It's a shopping mall in your pocket. Okay, that's all it is. It's, it's the rebranding and a consolidating, a concentrated form of a shopping mall. You have your newsstand, your marketplace, your library, your food court, your arcade, and a whole host of other things in this three and a half inch by two and a half inch device that fits into your pocket. And it's just the same thing rebranded another way. The only problem with that is that what the smartphone does is it allows me in a span of five years to experience what it took a previous generation 40 years to experience, which just makes me bored and anxious because now I have too much free time and not enough discovery, energy, and ambition left inside of me. But it's not new. It's absolutely not new. All of this, these four truths that Solomon gives to us, speak to the point that we live in a restless world that can find no landing place that holds a silent whisper to you and I to bid us to find the purpose of life. What is the purpose of life? Solomon then gives his brief explanation and forward for the book in verse 12. He says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore labor has God given to the sons of man to be exercised with. He says, here's my pursuit. I'm going to employ my wisdom, and I'm going to find the purpose of life. And this is the thing that everyone is seeking to do. You know, the difference between Solomon and you and I in our pursuit 
is that we run out of time, resources, and energy, and we're not smart enough to figure it all out. He did, he did have all that, and he says, I'm going to try. And then he gives his testimony and what he found in verse 14. He said, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and I have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and so I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. What Solomon says to us here is that I applied myself to find the answer to this great question. And he says, my conclusions are that the answer cannot be found, verse 14. That, number two, things cannot be fixed or changed on the foundational level, and that there are missing parts and unanswered questions that will leave this question out there. He says that to us in verse 15. And then he says that the result of my pursuit, the end of verse 17, he says, I perceived that this also was vexation of spirit, even the pursuit. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. The result of Solomon's experiment was vanity, vexation, grief, and sorrow. Unless, of course, there is a place called over the sun, the other side of the sun. Over the next 10 studies that we'll have in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to see this world, Lord willing, through a crystal clear lens. And in that, God's going to give us perspective and understanding and show us purpose and direction for our lives individually. And what we're going to learn is, first of all, where hope is not found, as we see Solomon's pursuit to find it in so many empty things. But second, hopefully, and this is my prayer for you and I, is that in the midst of that, we find the answer to where purpose and life is actually found. Some of the things that we're going to see in the chapters that are to come next week, we're going to have a study called Caught Between the Screen and the Glass, the Search for Satisfaction, and we're going to follow Solomon through all of his pursuits to find happiness in different things. We're going to have a study in the coming weeks called Stuck in the Escape Room, Search for Answers to Life's Hardest Questions. In chapter 4, we're going to talk about social injustice and why that exists in the world and how God exists in the middle of such inequality from a biblical perspective. We're going to have a study called Caught in the Money Trap. We're going to talk about the truth about wealth and money. We're going to talk about leading when you're not in charge, you know, and ultimately, we're going to talk about what is the very purpose of life under the sun. And I'm so excited about where we're going and the things that we're going to learn and see uh, in the studies that are to come. But here's what I see as a pastor in today's world. I see people from all walks of life, male and female, young and old, rich and poor, uh, parents, non-parents, people in every spectrum of life that are searching for meaning desperately. And what the Bible tells us is this. It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. It's when God first put Adam in the garden, and God said this to Adam. He said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. I want you to see those two words God said to Adam. He said, I want you to subdue it and I want you to have dominion over it. That word subdue, it's the Hebrew word kabesh. And what it literally means is harness the elements. 
God said to Adam, I want you to harness the elements and then have dominion means to create space. Make something of it. Harness the elements and then make something of it. Much like a gardener does. A gardener doesn't do anything magic. They harness what's there. The soil, the seed, the water, the laws of nature. And then they carve out a space and they make something grow. And what God said, what God put into every one of us is he put in this charge that we're to harness the elements and then we're to do something with it. And that's what God has put in us. It's the very fingerprint of God in your life and mine for us to do something with the time and to discover the purpose that God has for us here in this world. I was listening to an interview recently with a man who uh, made it big in the music industry back in the days of the Beatles. And when he was being asked what the secret of his success was and how he was able to experience so many things and do such a good job, he said, if I were to boil it down to one thing, it would be this. It was that when I was a child, just a young boy growing up, my father used to say to me every time I walked into the room that this room just got better because you're in it. And he said, for some strange reason, I believed it. For some strange reason, I just believed those words, that this room just got better, and I lived my life every day as though my presence in a place was an asset to that place and not a liability. Now, take yourself out of the context of him and put yourself into the context of your Heavenly Father. And here's what your Heavenly Father says about you. He says, when you walk into the room, the room gets better. When you walk into the room, the room got better. And he has a purpose and a meaning for you. He is for you and not against you. And he's given you this amazing power and this amazing charter to take what he's put before you and make something of it. And my prayer for you over the next coming weeks is that you come to discover this God in a more intimate way and that you come to discover this purpose. The tragedy that I see is that there are so many Christians that are caught up in the whirlwind of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world that keeps us trapped under the sun, the flesh which always takes the easy way, and the devil which blinds us to the fact that there's something more outside of it. And I say, even in Christians, I see so many that have traded their purpose and sold it for something that this world promises. They've traded their DNA in the Lord for some experience or some possession or some title. And in the process of it, they're getting trapped under the sun. So here's the response to tonight's study for you that are here tonight listening to my voice. Is that over these next few weeks, God is going to reason with us. And he's going to talk to us about our lives and the purpose of our lives. And you might be here even tonight and you're thinking, you know what, I feel vexed. I feel confused. I feel vain. I feel like I'm chasing after the wind. I feel like I'm spinning my wheels, but I'm not satisfied. And somewhere deep down inside, I know there's more. There's got to be more to this life. So this is the response to tonight's study for you that are here. To say, God, you've got my attention. And I want, you to, I want what you have for me. And Lord, would you please speak to me over these next weeks and help me to make the proper adjustments to make the most and make the best of what's in me. And that's the response for you and I to allow God to put us in that posture of heart to say, God, you've got my attention. 
I don't want to waste my life. I want to know your purpose and what the meaning of my life is, and I want to hear it. And if you're here tonight, and that's you, and you just say, I want more, I know there's more, I want to pray for you. And I just ask you right now just to raise your hand right where you are and let me pray for you. You say, God, you've got my attention. You've got my attention, God, and I want what you've got for me. Father, I pray in Jesus' name right now for all of us, Lord, with our hands raised. And we're saying to you, Lord, that we believe that you put something in us, a fingerprint of your very self. And you've laid before us, Lord, everything that we need to discover it and to walk in it. And I pray tonight, Lord, for the church at Calvary Chapel, the Hudson Valley. And I ask you, Lord, that you would speak to us. I pray that you would help us. I pray that you'd set us free, Lord, in the areas of our life where we've compromised and sold ourselves short. And you'd help us to find our place in you. And so, Lord, we're asking you, that you would do that for us tonight. Oh, Lord, we need you, and we declare our need to you. So would you help us, Lord, to discover it? In Jesus' name. And maybe you're here tonight, and you don't yet know Jesus Christ personally, and you're stuck in this side of the sun. You don't even have a relationship with God yet. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that God knows you. God knows you better than you know yourself. And more than that, God loves you. He's for you and not against you. And he loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to come into this world and live a perfect life, but then to die a sinner's death. And in so doing, what Jesus was doing is that he was taking your sin upon himself to open the way for you to be brought into a right relationship with God. And if you don't know God personally tonight, the pursuit of purpose starts right there with knowing the God that made you. You can't find purpose without it. The eyes of your understanding will always be shut. You'll live in a constant state of vexation and confusion. But God receives you. And maybe you're here tonight and you want to receive the God that received you. And if that's you, I just ask you again, just raise your hand tonight if you want to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Just right now where you are, put your hand up and say, yes, I want to know this God who gave himself for me. And I want to receive his grace in my life. And I want to pray for you. I see some hands going up in the middle of the room. Put your hands up high. Hold them up. Oh, Father, no one prays alone. Pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name I pray that you would come into my heart, that you would forgive me of my sins, that you would make me your child. And I pray that your spirit would live in my heart. I want to know you. I want to live for you. And I want your will for my life. So come in now and seal me. And I declare my trust in you in Jesus' name. Jesus' name, amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Let's stand together as we close the service.